0: Support for the podcast series Forgotten Prison comes from Gonzaga Law School and its Center for Civil and Human Rights, dedicated to enriching the educational experience of students and contributing to the practice of civil and human rights. Details at gonzaga.edu law. Thanks to Humanities Washington for their generous grant.
1: Simone, do you remember the big Nisqually earthquake here in 2001?
2: Yeah, I was in second grade. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I remember I was in music class and I think, you know, when the shaking started, my music teacher, she just yelled, hit the deck and we all got under the tables.
1: Well, I remember I was in our old offices. It was a brick building. We were up on the eighth floor. Definitely not earthquake proof. <laughs> Didn't even have air conditioning. Ooh. And my news director and I were under the table sort of holding on for dear life. And I think doing a little praying,
2: actually. Yeah, yeah praying. I, I was in Catholic school, and so we were saying, like, Hail Marys. Mm-hmm. And I remember the shaking was going, and I'm sitting under the table, and they, they were these folding tables. Folding tables? Yeah, and I, even at the time, I was like, oh, this, this can't be safe.
1: You think that was scary. Imagine being locked up on an island when the big one strikes.
3: Being in prison in an earthquake, I think, is probably the scariest thing I've ever been through.
1: Paul Wright was incarcerated at McNeil Island Prison for about three years, and he was there when the Nisqually quake struck on February 28, 2001.
3: You probably felt it, a frightening earthquake today. A 6.8 tremor shakes western Washington to its core.
2: That was from Como TV. The epicenter of the earthquake was in South Puget Sound, practically right next to McNeil Island. Paul Wright, who now lives in Florida, was in his cell when it hit.
3: I was in bed. I was sleeping. It was like, I don't know, it was around 11 o'clock or so in the morning. And um, I was taking a nap and the building started to shake and it was a bunk bed. And I was on the bottom bunk and I thought my cellmate, who was... Uh, heavy guy. Well, his nickname was Fat Phil. So (laughs) I thought Fat Phil was rolling around uh, on the bunk. And then when I realized it was an earthquake, I got up and uh, um, woke him up and we're both huddling in the doorway.
2: Once the shaking stopped, Paul and the other inmates in the unit wanted to get out of the building. But the guards? Said no,
3: and then basically they're threatened with look, either open the door and let us out, or we're going to take your keys and we're going to let ourselves out. And then I think we started getting another tremor then, and I think the guards are like, okay, I don't want to be in, I don't want to be inside the building either, despite you know much less to get beaten up and have my keys taken away from me. So, you know, so away we went.
2: Do you think there was any kind of um, like procedure in place? for that kind of thing? Or did it kind of feel like it was just catch-as-catch-can? Sure
3: can i a policy or procedure, but they didn't follow it. Or, you know, it's just, um, you know.
1: They were scared, too.
3: Yes.
2: Judy Hubert was scared. She was working at the prison annex on the island a few miles away from the main institution when the quake struck. It was terrifying, It was terrifying because it was so strong where we were. I mean, McNeil Island was so close to the epicenter of this earthquake, even though it was underground, you know, a, quite a ways, we still got hit pretty hard.
1: Judy and her husband Chris, who was a correctional officer on McNeil, say pretty much everyone who worked and lived on the island at the time was trained for this sort of emergency.
2: Although everybody just up and ran, nobody, nobody sheltered, you know, in the doorway. We just all were running down the halls with stuff falling over and file cabinets flying open. Um, but then we, you know, we still had a job to do. I mean, you get outside and you kind of go, whew, and then you have all these offenders that you need to attend to. In the end, no one was seriously injured on McNeil in the quake, and the buildings remained intact. But it is a reminder that prisons aren't immune to major earth-shaking events. <laughs>
1: From KNKX in the Washington State History Museum, this is Forgotten Prison. I'm Paula Whistle. And I'm
2: Simone Alisea.
1: The prison on McNeil Island ran for 136 years. That's a lot of history. Pick a historical event, and odds are good you can find at least one McNeil-related story about it.
4: That since... The unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war. In Korea, United Nations troops push on in the cautious advance against the communists. And it is this lesson that has brought us to
5: Vietnam.
1: Federal prisons played a role in nearly every major conflict in the 20th century. McNeil Island was one of the first federal prisons, and it remained one until the 1980s. For instance, looking over the list of inmates at McNeil from when the U.S. entered World War I, you start to see military-related crimes, desertion, disobeying orders, draft dodging. You even see foreign prisoners in for conspiracy against the U.S. And the connections go even deeper.
4: America prepares. All America
2: alters its- During the Second World War, federal prison industries across the country were converted to support the war effort. That means prison shoe factories started making military boots, and textile operations made soldiers' mattresses. Since McNeil was an island facility with a boatyard, inmates built ships and cargo nets for the Navy, and the cannery on the island produced food for the troops overseas. But there's more to war than just the fighting.
1: And McNeil has a role in that, too.
4: A caravan of Japanese-owned trucks and pleasure cars heads inland from the Pacific. Escorted by troopers, they go to make their homes under Uncle Sam's surveillance for the duration.
1: After Japan bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941, Japanese-Americans living on the West Coast were sent to internment camps. A lot of Americans feared there might be Japanese spies living among them. So the government can find them during the war. What you may not know is many of these Japanese Americans sent to internment camps were called up for the draft.
2: So imagine this. Your government tells you you have to leave your home because they're afraid of you. They ship you off to the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. And then they say, yeah, so this war that we're fighting, the war that's causing all of this, we need you to leave your family and come fight. For us.
1: A lot of the Japanese Americans in the internment camps did agree to serve, but many of them did not, including Yoshido Kirimiya.
3: The government was on the wrong side of this whole issue...
1: Yoshido passed away last year in California. He was 94 when the History Museum interviewed him in 2017. Yoshido, who went by Yosh, was sent to the Heart Mountain internment camp in Wyoming with his family when he was 18. The phone quality isn't great here, but he's saying the government was on the wrong side.
3: But as a result of the war hysteria and the way things were handled during that time, We saw a whole different side of our government. Yosh refused
2: the draft, which is a federal crime. He was convicted in 1944
3: and sent to McNeil Island. We uh, took the train from the uh, Cheyenne to uh, Yilacombe.
2: As Yosh and other Japanese-American draft resistors pulled into Silicon, Washington, they could see the island and the prison on its shores.
3: Yeah, we took a ferry from there uh, to McNeil Island. And actually it was, uh, it was a beautiful environment.
2: But that beautiful environment was a stark contrast to the prison itself. Yosh and the others spent about a month in the main institution, what he called the big house, with its tiers and metal bars.
3: You know, that was pretty scary because they, they, they had, you know, the, you know, the regular uh, criminals there.
1: But he said that was really the only time he felt scared on the island. After that first month, Yosh and the other Japanese-American draft resistors were moved to the honor farm on the island. It was a few miles inland from the main prison, and the security level was much lower. There wasn't any barbed wire, and they got to work around the island. They had their own softball diamond, and there were enough guys to field a few teams.
3: There were quite a few conscientious objectors. It
1: was a pretty um, intellectual... He said there were other political draft resistors, African-Americans who refused to fight for a country that discriminated against them, and others who refused for religious reasons. They would have intellectual conversations, and he said he learned a lot from them.
3: So it turned out to be uh, quite positive for me, uh, at
1: By the time Yosh was released in 1946, he had spent the previous five years in some sort of confinement, either in the camp in Wyoming or on McNeil Island. Eventually the Supreme Court ruled that the internment camps were unconstitutional and the government apologized. President Truman later pardoned Yosh and the other Japanese-American draft sisters.
2: When you start connecting a place like McNeil Island to these broader historical events, you can see how prison isn't just about dealing with crime. Who we lock up says a lot about our prejudices and our politics of the time.
1: McNeil Island Prison is abandoned now and completely off limits to the general public. We were allowed inside as part of this project with the State History Museum. Walking through the buildings, the place that seemed most likely to be haunted were the old isolation chambers.
2: This is a true dungeon. There's another level that goes up higher.
1: You climb several floors of narrow metal stairs to arrive at a series of small, windowless, claustrophobic cells. We crowded into them with the History Museum folks and our tour guides from the Department of Corrections.
2: Oh, whoa. All right, what are we seeing here, guys?
1: Nicholas, 1961, hammer and sickle, so I don't know if he was Russian. There's another hammer and sickle. Or
2: just socialist. Either. He could have been a socialist. 1961.
1: We don't know what tools inmates used to etch these messages into the concrete. What we do know is these
2: isolation cells were used into the 1970s. Anti-Vietnam War activist Roger Lippman did time in these cells.
0: The first thing they did to me and Jeff was throw us in solitary. It was kind of like the Tower of something. Um, it, it was horrible, you know, I mean, just bare minimum.
2: Roger, along with a guy named Jeff Dowd and five other anti war protesters, were found guilty of contempt of court in 1970. That's how Roger and Jeff ended up at McNeil Island Prison. Roger had dropped out of college. He was 24 and doing anti-war activities full-time. He joined the Radical Seattle Liberation Front, and when a demonstration at the federal courthouse in downtown Seattle turned violent and courthouse windows were smashed, Roger was among those indicted for conspiracy to incite a riot. He says he wasn't even in town at the time, and he and the other alleged co-conspirators hardly knew each other.
0: We were protesting the Vietnam War, and the government was attempting to stifle dissent. And they used whatever tools they had, legal and political and police and military, to, to try and stop the anti-war movement, and they couldn't.
1: And McNeil Island Prison played a small part in that.
0: It certainly did, yes.
1: The trial in Tacoma was front-page news. The Seattle Seven, as the defendants were called, shouted down the judge. There were outbursts from supporters, shoving matches with U.S. Marshals. Although Judge George Bolt eventually declared a mistrial, because of the antics, he found the defendants in contempt of court and sentenced them to prison. That's why Roger and Jeff
2: spent a month at McNeil. Roger's short time at McNeil was pretty emblematic of the 70s. He was there as a result of his protesting. But at that time, drug culture was also making it into the prisons in a big way. And Roger has a story about that.
1: So tell me about this letter you got. So
0: I received a letter uh, with a postage stamp that had a peculiar bulge. And I was expecting it. So, and the mailroom apparently was not expecting it, so they didn't notice. Um, I opened it up and there were two hits of windowpane LSD. So one day, Jeff and I took these and we had sort of made some preparations. We wanted to make sure that we just didn't stand out among our fellow prisoners or anybody as being weird or abnormal, and that was hard, uh, though we were a little weird already.
1: Fun fact here about Roger's buddy, Jeff Dowd, he later moved to Hollywood and became the inspiration for the character of The Dude in The Big Lebowski. Anyway, so Roger and Jeff were trying to act as normal as possible.
0: We sat, we sat at tables of four and we picked out a couple of our friends to sit with that day, one of whom was, a, was in for heroin, so we figured You know, if he got onto us, he wouldn't really care anyway. And we survived and got through the day, and nobody else noticed, uh, or nobody said anything to us anyway. We watched TV shows. We watched Lost in Space, and, boy, were we. (laughs) But what you want, you know, when you're in prison is escape, and we felt like we escaped.
2: (laughs) In the 70s, prisons were having to deal with changing attitudes from a younger generation when people were questioning authority. It's one of the reasons why Jeff and Roger were put in solitary confinement right when they arrived at McNeil. After the weekend there, Roger says they were sent to the warden.
0: So Monday morning, we're called into the warden's office. And he kind of explains, he says, well, you know, you can get along or you can stay in the hole. Um, in other words, you know, they weren't happy with what we had done in Tacoma and they just wanted to make sure we weren't going to do it there.
1: He says McNeil prison officials viewed him and the other anti-war protesters as dangerous
0: people. And we had lawyers and we had a movement behind us and we were white. And all of those things, you know, made us more threatening to order in the prison.
2: Roger's experience shows how prison life is part of these major cultural moments. Shifting attitudes about drugs and civil rights on the outside seeped into prisons like McNeil. But prisons and the people inside them aren't just passive observers to history. The growing prisoner rights movement of the 70s was part of these touchstones.
1: Going through the rooms of the abandoned prison on McNeil, we keep coming across random stuff left behind when the prison closed in 2011. Old VHS tapes, sports trophies from prison sports teams. But there's also evidence of prison strife, of people on the inside trying to change things. Hey, food boycott, U.S. Penitentiary.
2: Oh, these are clips.
1: About hunger, about the hunger strike. McNeil ships out hunger strikers.
2: In one room, there's a box, and in that box is a binder. And in that binder is more than a hundred pages about a hunger strike inmates went on in the 70s. Simone,
1: you've been really looking into these hunger strikes that happened in the 70s.
2: Yeah, so there's there's sort of two main ones. Actually, several happened at McNeil in the 70s mm-hmm. um, of varying lengths and, mm-hmm. and sort of significance. But I think probably the two biggest ones, there was one in 1971, um, mm-hmm. and then there was one in 1976.
1: Now yeah, they drew uh, they drew national attention, right? Or
2: yeah, did they? Yeah, definitely the the one in seventy one definitely drew mm-hmm. national attention. So in nineteen seventy one, um, there was a a work stoppage. Uh, this was a work strike for several days, uh, just to give you a sense of what else is going on yeah, in prisons right. at yeah. this time. So the the strike at mcneil is march 1971 september 1971 is the
4: attica riot oh, oh. at attica new york state prison more than a thousand inmates erupted in a volcanic orgy of mayhem arson and hostage seizing.
2: multiple people we've spoken to and i think anyone who was around during that time said it, it really changed things in prisons i mean so that was a that was a four-day violent riot uh, wherein inmates took over the institution people, and people were killed. Pe- many people were killed. Uh, the National Guard was called in. Mm. Big, big deal. So. Several months before that... At McNeil Island. At McNeil Island. Out here in uh, <laughs> the Northwest. There was a, a work strike that also that also garnered national attention. Um, it prompted uh, Jane Fonda to mm-hmm. come out and speak on behalf of the inmates. Um, Pete Seeger came out and, and performed and uh, in support.
0: Speck, you'll miss me when I'm gone, but I'm going through. When this fighting's over, I'll come
2: back to you um, famous journalist Jessica Mitford. Oh yeah, uh, uh, Jessica Mitford, sort of famous
1: for being an activist and kind of a muckraker exposing institutions.
2: Yeah, abso- well, so so one of the institutions that she uh-huh. tried to expose was uh, the prison, the federal prison on McNeil Island. And in fact, in 1971, she wanted to to come and, and interview inmates who were striking to find out why they were striking, mm-hmm. but uh, she was denied access, and she actually filed a lawsuit, and that lawsuit the ninth circuit court of appeals eventually ruled against her and it was one of the lawsuits that sort of determined that prisons uh could control access journalist access to inmates um and so that was a result of a direct result of this work strike that was going on on mcneil island that she was suing to to get information about
1: So, you read this report mm-hmm. about the 76 uh, strike, and what did you find?
2: You know, you, you get so much like personality from mm-hmm. someone's mm-hmm. handwriting. Right. And so, you're reading the demands for uh, better sanitation in mm-hmm. the kitchen, and, you know, there was hair in the food, or, or they weren't, or that food was rotten, or that it wasn't prepared well. Mm-hmm um towels was also a big thing they needed more towels there was a shortage of linens interesting Um, one person this is one of my favorite Hmm. one guy wrote a letter to the warden complaining about the towels he he basically said um if the founder of McNeil island were to come back to life and come see the island that bears his name he wouldn't be able to stand the stench of a thousand unwashed men and he goes on to say Hmm well, you could say that uh, I should just take my shower and allow myself to drip dry, but it is socially impolite to dry off in the nude in a 10-man cell. Oh,
1: gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that image, wow.
2: The other thing I'll say that's sort of really interesting when you read it is Mm -hmm. um, the way race comes into play in in The Strike. In what way? Well, in a a couple different ways. Um, when they're trying to identify um who's responsible so to speak
1: like who the spokesperson (laughs) spokesman is they they use the word
2: agitator right who who are the (laughs) agitators right who are the people who are who are agitating the rest of the population and getting Mm -hmm. them all worked up uh and um they they identify a few people that they They sort of conclude that there were two black inmates who were sort of the head. They go on to say that it appears that um, a particular group, the Mexican-American self-help group known as MASH at the time, um, also participated and sort of corralled people. And it, it kind of seemed that the report was saying... Again, this is me reading between the lines mm-hmm. here, but but from what I got it was, you know, these Mexicans and these black guys, they're they're stirring up trouble and they mm-hmm. are causing uh they're causing the inmates to be agitated.
1: So how did it all conclude? I mean, were there changes made at the prisons? What what happened?
2: So the, so the hunger strike of 76 itself concluded pretty quietly. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, what happened was is... The media went away. And- <laughs> well, I, and the the prison officials kind of took a... Di- you know, it lasted about three days. And, and by the third day, they had taken kind of a divide and conquer approach. They were mm-hmm. able to sort of separate people out and, you know, get the people who were only maybe half committed to eat. And oh, okay. once those people started eating, everyone else felt safe. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing they did early on in the hunger strike is they identified 17 people who they saw as the main agitators, and they shipped them off in the middle of the night to another federal prison. Oh. Well,
1: what do you think the takeaway from
2: all of this is,
1: in terms of McNeil Island's history, I guess?
2: I think, number one, that 1971 strike really shows you like, that McNeil was actually sort of on the ground of... Of, of prison history, of, of U.S. prison history. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact—I to me, the fact that Jessica Mitford filed that lawsuit mm-hmm. as a result of not getting access right. to McNeil Island—to it, me—shows it's just a, yet another example of the significance of McNeil's history that most of us have forgotten about.
1: The, that a report was found sitting in a box in an <laughs> empty room in the prison.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think the second thing that we should take away from this is the fights that prisoners were having um, were so complex in the sense that they were sort of basic in what Mm -hmm. they were asking for, but it meant so much more, right? So yes, you're asking for cleaner food preparation, but that is such a huge part of your day-to-day life. And the fact that you don't have that is profound in its own right.
1: In the course of producing this podcast, we've often run across things that made us go, wow, McNeil Island was connected to that? One of those moments for me came when I was interviewing former McNeil prison warden Bud Gray.
2: Wait, Gray was the one who was tasked with shutting McNeil down as a federal prison before the state took over. Right. So,
1: so we're sitting in his living room, and he's telling me about what it was like in 1980 as he was in the process of transferring out prisoners and staff in preparation for the feds to vacate the
4: place. And it was starting to wind down because we were planning on closing it in 1980 or 81. And then he says this. We got a call one day and said, you're going to have 350-some Cubans coming in, and they came in the next morning.
1: That's right, 350 Cubans. He tells me they'd arrived in Florida as part of the Mariel Boatlift. Now, I knew about the boatlift, but had no idea that thousands of miles away, McNeil Island
2: played a role. Let's back up for a moment and explain the Mariel Boatlift. Over the course of two months in the spring of 1980, nearly 125 Thousand Cubans crowded into boats at Port Mariel in northern Cuba and sailed to Florida. In this U.S. government film produced that year, you hear the refugees talk about their lives in Cuba and why they were desperate to escape. They talk about political repression, lack of food, and an inability to meet basic needs. It was a huge humanitarian crisis for President Jimmy Carter as he tried to respond to actions taken by Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. The FBI vetted people as they arrived, and anyone suspected of being a criminal was detained until they could go before an immigration judge.
4: Didn't have any place to put them, so uh, McNeil Island was a, was a good place. I had beds, empty beds.
1: But Bud and the prison were ill prepared for the Cuban detainees. First, there was the food.
4: Yeah started feeding them a good diet, and it just made them sick, and they couldn't stand the protein.
1: There was a language barrier, too. Only one person on staff spoke Spanish, and Bud was suspicious of the new arrivals and their actions.
4: Most of them came out of jails, jails, prisons, and and prostitutes off the streets. Some of them uh, wanted to get along, and they'd tell you things. Like all prisoners do, you you have a snitch or two here. They'd say that guy whether he he understands English. But he would never let you know that, you know, because you might be standing having a conversation and he's got an ear listening to see what you're talking about, you know.
2: <laughs> there were often conflicts at McNeil and the other federal prisons that held Cubans suspected of being criminals. At one point on McNeil, thirty men crowded into a two man cell and refused to come out to eat. It's unclear why, because of the language barrier, but it got so bad that guards suited up in riot gear and prepared to go in until the Catholic chaplain, who did speak Spanish, was able to defuse the situation
4: they were they were troublesome people, but what we kinds had, of things we had, specifically
2: were they doing? Oh,
4: we had murders, and uh it was. Because they, life is very, oh, very cheap for them.
2: The general public saw the Mariel Boatlift and the Cubans who came here much in the same way the warden did.
5: The majority of Americans, when he looked at polling that was done at the time, were deeply suspicious of these Cubans that were coming over.
2: Andrew Gomez teaches Latin American history at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, and his father came on the boatlift.
5: And I'll also say there's a racial element to this as well, because previous waves of Cuban migration had been overwhelmingly light-skinned white Cubans, and this was the first uh, major uh, Cuban wave of migration to the United States post-1959 wave, that was substantively black, and that played a part in this. And if you look at the statistics of people who were more likely to be held in federal institutions, people who were more likely to be sent into resettlement camps, um, those things occurred along racial lines.
1: Another big problem was the way Castro, Castro, sold, Castro it sold it to the Cubans. Cubans.
5: Was we are ridding Cuba of the escoria of the country, the scum of the country, right? And so it was this image that it's the people that we don't want here that are leaving the country. And so that became dominant in many U.S. circles, this idea that it's him opening up prisons and mental health institutions and that's who's coming over and while it's true that some criminals were part of the boat lift that's really tricky territory because when you say that somebody was imprisoned in Cuba you could have been imprisoned because you were a member of Cuba's queer community you could have been imprisoned because you were a political dissident and in fact people who have researched this have estimated that the type of hardened criminal that we were really worried about that made up about 4% of the 125,000 Cubans that came over.
1: then there was the movie Scarface. Okay,
5: so what do you call yourself, eh? Como se llama? Antonio Montana.
1: So Scarface, the film, he's supposedly one of the, uh, came on the boat lift, right? He's a Marielito
5: who, the moment he gets here, kills somebody, right? And becomes a drug warlord.
0: Maybe you can handle yourself one of them first-class tickets to the resurrection. Son of a
5: bitch. <laughs> Right? So Al Pacino, with the worst Cuban accent you will ever hear in your life, um, created this sort of legendary figure of of who came over during Mariel. And any Cuban-American worth their salt loathes that movie for that reason.
2: Which Cubans ended up at McNeil? Andrew says we really don't know. The Cubans who came were either released after their immigration hearing or sent to other federal prisons. But there's been no research on McNeil's role in this piece of history. What is that?
0: These
1: are adding machines? Adding machines, I
2: guess. Floppy disks. Standing in the abandoned prison on McNeil Island, history stares you right in the face. And I think there's a reason we're interested in hearing about how this island in South Puget Sound was connected to these world-altering events. It reminds us that history happens here. Most people won't ever have the chance to see that history out on McNeil.
1: We're not exactly encouraged to seek it out either. Prisons are rarely at the center of our history lessons. But not including them leaves a hole in our understanding of history in general, of the place where we live, and of ourselves.
2: Oh, look at those photos from e-block, bottom, The more you learn about McNeil Island, the more it feels like it's a place we should know more about. But that's kind of how it is with prisons. It makes you wonder what else we're forgetting and why. We wrestle with those
1: questions in Episode 6, which will be our final episode of Forgotten Prison.
2: Forgotten Prison is produced by me, Simona Lisea, and me, Paula Whistle. Our editor is Aaron Hennessy. Additional editing from Bethany Denton, who's also our mix engineer. Bill Anschel does our music, and Parker Miles-Blome is the man behind our website, ForgottenPrison.org. That's also where you can find his amazing photos of the place. Kari Plogh is our digital content manager. Matt Martinez is our director of content. Our logo was created by Adrian Flores. Thanks so much to our partners at the
1: Washington State History Museum, especially audience engagement director, Mary Michael Stump, and lead curator, Gwen Whiting. Be sure to check out the accompanying exhibit about McNeil Island at the museum in Tacoma. That exhibit runs through May, 2019. More details at ForgottenPrison.org. We also get some financial support
2: from Humanities Washington. Thanks so much to everyone who helped out with research for this episode, especially former McNeil Guard, Charles Scanlon, Eric Heinitz with the Department of Corrections, which facilitated our visits to the island, Felix Spinell, who interviewed Yosh for the History Museum, and Dave Beals, who did a lot of early research.
1: Special thanks to the NPR Story Lab and training teams. And we also want to thank all
2: our colleagues at KNKX for their support. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review of the podcast, and please reach out. You can find our information at knkx.org. That website is also where you'll find all the news and music we have to offer at KNKX. And it's where you can make a pledge to support the in-depth journalism that you hear in this podcast. Thanks for listening. This is Forgotten Prison.